It's four o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means. More fun than you can possibly stand, because this is another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. This week, starring special guest star, Mr. Ronan Chris Murphy. Yeah, he's crazy, because he's been back like five times. I know, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Oh, I love being here. So. I'm always amazed that you still come back. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Check this out, audience. We can pan. <laughs> I got a new stand for the laptop. I'm so excited. It doesn't take much, you know? Every day is like Christmas here at Taxi. <laughs> anyway, hello to all you folks in the chat room. Great to see you. Who do we have? Anna, Fenn. Oh, nice group. Um, Mojo, Ken. I saw somebody else go by. No. Kelly, uh, Daryl, Wendelin. That's a new name for me. Linda Cullum, Carl Wersbach. All you guys, hello and welcome back to the big show. So, in case you have never seen an episode with Ronan, and I keep wanting to call him Conan, but it's their hair is different. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You'll used take to, his bank account. It used to be the same. But. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, Ronan is a producer, engineer, and mixer. He's worked with the likes of King Crimson on several albums. Steve Morse from the Dixie Dregs, Deep Purple, or Steve Morse is from the Dixie Dregs and Deep Purple. Terry Bozio, who's worked with uh, Zappa and Missing Persons, he was actually kind of Missing Persons. Uh, Steve Stevens from Billy Idol's band, Tony Levin uh, from Peter Gabriel, John Lennon, Pink Floyd, Martin Sexton, Jamie Walters, Oliver, the California <laughs> Guitar Trio, Chucho Valdez y Grupo Iraqere. Yeah, I knew so, that. The kings of Cuban jazz. Oh. Um, which is one of the greatest genres of music yes. in the world. Um, John La Barbara. Joan La Barbara. Uh, yeah. Joan La Barbara. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Nels Klein from Wilco, as well as various projects featuring members of Tool, Ministry, Weezer, Dishwalla, and yes, but never know. <laughs> and with that, I'd like to remind our viewing audience now before Bria kicks me under the table to subscribe. It's that little button right down there like us because we're insecure we need it and share this sucker even if you don't have like you know what send it to your grandmother she would <laughs> love this episode grandmothers are my my core demographic i you know me too <laughs> i don't know why it is but ladies who are of a certain age really like me um, <laughs> and ladies of a younger age probably don't <laughs> i've never let that bother me um uh. Also want to make a short announcement at the top of the show that Road Rally 2018, yes, when I take last year's, uh, whatever you call this thing, schedule of events and cross out the 2017 and write 2018 on it, that means it's coming. And have I already pretty much picked out the panels? Yes. I've started scribbling stuff in. So mark your calendars now, November 1st through the 4th, 2018. And uh, the Road Rally is going to be awesome. And, of course, Ronan will be there. Of course. So uh, we are going to talk engineering and production, which um, Ronan and I have had many great conversations over the years. I've got a bunch of questions prepared, he says. It's going to take several shows to cover all this stuff. <laughs> and then uh, hopefully, like, the last 15, 20 minutes, we'll take some questions from you folks as well. So, um, oh, I should mention that Ronan also teaches um, engineering and production on at least two continents that I'm aware of. Um, frequently found in the south of Italy, right? North. North, north of, of Italy, Italy yeah. Um, um, like twice a year? Uh, usually about once a year. So once next year. one's coming up in, in September, end of September. 
Okay, yeah. so, uh, and you're there for a while, right? Yeah, well, I always try and tie other stuff into it, and I love Italy, so I end up usually spending four to six weeks there every year. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was kidding him last time. He said uh, something about moving our last episode together. <laughs> and I said, sure, I'll let you do it, but you got to bring me back a jar of olives from Italy. And he actually brought me back a jar of olives from Italy, which were really good, by excellent, the way. Excellent, excellent. Um, Anyway, he's been teaching his recording boot camp uh, workshops and retreats for a very long time. I've never heard anything but exceptionally good remarks about all of them. He's a regular at the rally and a longtime friend of ours, and we're really glad to have you back. I love being here. Um, so let's jump right into it. Let's talk about high-pass filters because I remember when I was just a pup starting out <laughs> in the industry and I heard high-pass filter. Hmm. Um, obviously, it lets the highs pass, but what does it do to the lows? So let's <laughs> talk about what it does and why it's really good, both on the recording side and mixing side. Well, I mean, high-pass filter is fancy way to say that thing that cuts off the low end. Right. And, and it's really easy, even those of us who've done this for decades, will still accidentally say high-pass when we mean low-pass, because, but high-pass cuts off the low end, low-pass cuts off the high end. Right. And... The, the great thing about it is it's it's really an EQ technique, and I think we should probably talk about high and low pass. Okay. You know, because they're both incredibly powerful. I'd probably use high pass filters more. Yeah. But essentially, these are filters, EQs, um, that are going to have a curve which will essentially just start cutting off everything above or below a certain frequency point. So a lot of like your typical console mixers, the low, if you don't have a lot of adjustments, will be a, a shelving thing, which will sort of attenuate, you know, say, for instance, all the low end. But today's uh, big word of the day is attenuate. Fancy word for turn stuff down. There you go. <laughs> it's a, um, but it's a really cool way to deal with when you've got a lot of junk in, in, a, in the high end or the low end. And so a lot of times with something... Uh, especially in more dense pop and rock kind of mixes, or which would include country, funk, punk, anything like that. Uh, when you have too much low end going on, things just get messy and undefined. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, messy and undefined doesn't come off as powerful. And so there's a lot of stuff like deep sub rumbly stuff going on coming from something like a guitar or the low end of a piano, things like that. All that stuff, it's, it's not really prominent and bringing much to the party, but it is putting energy down there and, and fighting the clarity and articulation of things that really do matter in the low end, it, like a bass guitar. Or, additive, because yeah. if you've got low-end rumble coming from several sources, you may not even hear it because it's being masked. But yeah, it does. absolutely. It, it, yeah, like absolutely. putting you know tissue paper over everything yeah. or something. And a big thing about that is there's a lot of just real energy and just in terms of voltage down there with that low rumble coming from an acoustic piano or something like that. And all the more energy you have, the more when you go and hit a limiter to try and get your mix to sound loud, the more it's going to start, the limiter's going to start fighting back mm -hmm. where you get some of those nasty distortion artifacts you can get from a mastering limiter. So if you clean up where a lot of that low energy is that you don't really need, that allows you to sort of push into the limiters a little bit harder for a nice loud master without so much distortion and ugliness. So you can actually get things that, you know, f that feel louder and bigger and punchier um, with less of the negative artifacts. And truth is, if your low end is articulate, a lot of times, uh, even two things that are exactly the same level on a meter, the clean one will generally sound bigger and punchy, wider, all those kind of 
things we usually like to describe as positives in a mix. So can I distill all that down to people who are just starting yeah, out? Yeah, sorry, I'm getting... Well, that's okay. <laughs> yes. you know, I mean, look... I have, get ex- sorry, I get excited about a, high-pass half filters. Half of our audience, you know, are people that are aware of this stuff and, and know the four-syllable yeah. words. Um, and, and I don't... I mean four-syllable engineering-specific <laughs> words, um, not words in general. Um, so it's safe to say virtually on every channel or every track of your recording, if you don't need something in the very, very low end, you might as well just use the high pass filter across the board to just as a rule of thumb to suck out that low energy yeah. that's unneeded. Yeah, and I mean, one thing is for those of you who kind of look around on the internet and look for, for advice, cutting the low end you know, with usually with high pass filters off most of the tracks is extremely common among professionals. So you can be a um, professional if you do it. The, the thing I want to point out is, though, there's a bunch of people, kind of audio educators online, you know, sort of dismissing that technique. You know, saying, oh, it, you shouldn't do it, it's dumb, blah, blah, blah. How could it possibly be dumb? I can understand, yeah. like, you know, if you don't know what you're doing with frequencies and EQ in general, yeah. that there are things, that, places you'd want to avoid if you don't know what you're doing. But generally speaking, yeah. But and, why not? And I'm even cool with somebody saying, "Oh yeah, I my mixing techniques, I don't like to do that. Mm-hmm. I like a different approach." Totally valid, but it's one of those things and this is when you're sort of gathering ideas about how to approach your own work. Um, if there's a technique that the overwhelming majority of successful professionals use, it's probably something worth considering in your own work. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. mean it's the only right one, but and and I think I sort of am being a little you know, miffed about this because it's a big kind of trend I've seen. Like even last year or two, a lot of sort of online audio educators, which I'm one, so I'm not dismissing the um, the group of it, where they're sort of you know scoffing at these techniques of like, oh, you should never, you you shouldn't do it this way. Fair enough to say you don't like to do it that way, but. You know, I just saw something about uh, LCR panning, which means basically panning everything to the left, to the right, or straight up the middle. And it was this article about how you shouldn't do it because X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. You know, fair enough for somebody to share their own opinions, but when the overwhelming majority of the most successful people in the world do something one way, I'm not really sure it's correct to say you shouldn't do it that way. Crazy, I know. Well, yeah, <laughs> I see the same logic applied with people following standard uh, and commonly used song forms. You mm-hmm. know, I don't want to write in a typical um, AB, you know, pop song form mm-hmm. because it's so formulaic. Well, if, you know, 86% of the hit records use that form, why not give listeners what they're familiar with? So I, I am somebody who believes you should go with what the pros know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you become a pro yourself, then you're smart enough and experienced enough to vary from that path because you can. Mm-hmm. But when you're, you know, relatively new in the game. Yeah. Duh. I mean, I think a lot of those things are good starting and launching points and I'm I'm all for people following their muse where they need to but it's one of those things where if you're trying to craft things in a way that's it's one of those things when you follow your muse about you know whether it's engineering or songwriting or mixing styles or anything like that and and then go why doesn't my stuff sound like this like <laughs> xyz big biggest hits in the world right it's like well because you because your muse told you not to do that that's right. And it doesn't mean that 
their records are better than your records artistically, emotionally, any of those kind of things. But you know, they might be. <laughs> but I mean, and and I love a lot of avant-garde, experimental indie things like that. So I mean, I I love you know I love King Crimson and Britney Spears the same. You know, if, if you do something great, I'm down with it. Mm -hmm. um, but it is one of those, and that's one of the mistakes a lot of people make. Boy, this went off from high pass filters real quick. But <laughs> um, but when people are sort of struggling to sort of meet a benchmark, which I think, you know, in the world of taxi, where there's so many kind of opportunities for licensing in the style of or things like that, right. you know, people will try and sort of hit some benchmarks of, uh, of sound, of song form or something like that and totally dismiss how their target did something. Right. And it's kind of it's kind of a crazy bonkers thing and you know I do a lot of consulting work for people all over the world and it's amazing how much people could just save money not hiring me by doing this one thing. And it's listening to the things you aspire to yeah. listening to the competition the map is out there yeah and all you have to do is read it and and it's not always the same but it's one of those things like wow i can't why don't my mixes sound like you know i put on this record and the mixes sound like this attribute that i love and i put on my mix and it's like yeah it doesn't reach that goal i guess i don't know what i'm doing well the reality is it's amazing how many people haven't sat down and said okay here's a great mix by artist i love Here's my crummy mix. What's different? <laughs> and it's bonkers how many people like, you know, hire me, pay me good money for consulting for me to go, uh, did you listen to? <laughs> you know what? Here's why. And this was something I was going to talk about later, but we can talk about it now, which is the isolation factor. Mm -hmm. Back when I started out in the industry, uh, there weren't home studios. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you got a job working at a pro studio and you were around other professionals that yep. did all that experimentation and did all the figuring out yep. and you were the benefactor of what they had learned. Mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, people have much more equipment, much more room and time to experiment, but they don't have the interaction and, and they don't necessarily know who to believe online. Yes. Uh -huh. They go to gear slots and they see everybody's got an opinion, but how experienced or how successful or how good do the mixes sound or recording sound by that person who's giving the opinion. Yeah. Uh -huh. In my day when, you know, when Tom Dowd or Bill Simsick or one of those people said, this is how I do it, you knew that was credible. Yeah. Uh -huh. So that doesn't exist yeah. anymore. So I can yeah. understand why it happens but you know what, <laughs> you, yeah. um, there are people out there with very credible resumes yeah. that are teaching them. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to sort of scoff at anybody who's in that position because, you know, say, for instance, I'm having a problem fixing the toilet in my house. Yeah. Like, I'm going to go online, go right. on YouTube, like, how to fix the thing that does this. And I'll, I'll see somebody who seems, they seem bright. It looks like they took a shower this week. And, <laughs> you know, and they'll say, oh, yeah, use a Phillips head and do this. And I'll go, Okay. Right. And that's what I'll go try. And I and I don't go to look up to see how many years they worked as a professional plumber or, you know, what are their Yelp reviews of their plumbing business. I'm just like, there was a guy online who said how to fix the toilet. And I went and tried that technique. So it's the same thing. For and the, then I called the insurance company. I've seen <laughs> that. TV exactly. Yet. But yeah, it's the same thing, you know, for somebody struggling with, wow, how do I get my snare drum to pop? Yeah. And then they'll go online and somebody who looks credible and will talk about something usually some incredibly complex technique when really the experienced pros would be like oh yeah do this one thing right but <laughs> um let's talk about the relationship between the the bass guitar and the kick drum mm -hmm. i 
personally believe that in today's market, um, that that is often ignored. I hear a lot of yeah. stuff where um, people are using sampled drums and they're using sampled basses and things sound good. I've got to say, they sound good pretty much coming down a wire out mm -hmm. of a box, what have you. But they don't really understand that the relationship between those two things is so key. And yep. it goes back to using the high pass filter where mm -hmm. you're rolling off the unnecessary bottom end that's living down below the frequencies you need in the kick drum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that rumbles around with the bass guitar and makes everything kind of flaccid for lack of a better word. Yeah. So how do you approach getting a great kick and bass sound? Where do you start with them flat and balance them out? Or do you take one and EQ it and compress it and then bring the other and go, they work well together? It's, well, I'm, I'm almost always making this decisions after I've pulled up the whole mix together in context. Um, because the biggest important thing about this is finding what role does each instrument play? I mean, in terms of the kick drum, because uh, how I'm going to EQ, compress, etc., the bass and the bass and the kick drum is really dependent on the role that they play, and so, which would be generate well, that role and, would be yeah. dictated by the the type of music, absolutely, but, um, the tempo of the song, yeah. all this. And stuff. so, and um, the thing about low end is low end. Low end is um, I was gonna. I'll avoid cussing on here, but low end is pretty tough because the thing is low when you have low end It's like a Godzilla movie where he's fighting some other giant monster So you have these two giant monsters with incredible power and energy and real estate that they take up fighting for the same thing And if those try and cram into the same space most of the time It ends up you would think that would be crazy powerful, but it actually right. ends up being weak so it's a big uh, thing about finding out where does each piece fit? And it's rare that two things will have a lot of low end in any mix that I do. And where I'll make those decisions about should it be the bass drum or should it be the kick drum? Uh, if you've got something like a very, like a U2 record or an 80s style rock where you've got the bass just going dung, 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 just driving eighth notes, well, you're gonna have that low energy just sort of rumbling all the way through and and if you have a big kick drum in there, it's just gonna get messy and flabby every time you put it. So I'll likely go maybe go for a brighter kind of kick drum sound. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if you had something busier, like you know Chris Squire from Yes, who's uh, or John Entwistle from The Who, who are playing higher, much more melodic, more phrasing and spacing, I might let them keep the high real estate, and then uh, you know, and then let let the kick drum take the low end on there mm -hmm. because really you can only have one of those sounding big and gargantuan and like one of the things i did a blog post about it years ago um is that nobody ever asked me for the ba the the bass sound from cashmere mm -hmm. you know people always think about like oh yeah like the bottom drum sound well there's no bottom drum sound but when they say that they mean either cashmere or when the levee breaks mm -hmm. which just has this very boomy low boom boom roomy sound cashmere doesn't have bass on it so you have this beaut, it is, it's a gorgeous, big, fat kick drum, and, uh, and they just didn't put bass on there. There is a keyboard that goes dunk, 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 dunk. Right. But the reason it's so gorgeous is because it has no it's competition. Clear, right. And even the things like when the levee breaks, perfect example, if that record didn't start with a drum intro, nobody would ask for the drum sound of when the levee breaks. Because right. again, it's big, beautiful, but when the whole band comes in, bass comes in, it's actually kind of flat, not very impressive, but naked, it sounds incredible. 
So it's, it's a lot about finding where everything fits into a role. And especially when you get into some heavier music like new metal or things like that, where bass will actually have a lot of extended high frequencies to sit on top of guitars. It's all over the map, but it's really so I, finding where, you know, where does everything fit? What's the place for each of these parts? How does somebody with a home studio with reasonably decent chops, they're no longer intimidated by tech and they're uh -huh. making their way in the world, how do they learn to develop taste and common sense? Uh, because that really drives, if you're trying to learn the tech and you don't know what you're trying to achieve with mm -hmm. it or, or you don't have a, an image in your mind of what it should sound like, then you're just kind of turning knobs mm -hmm. up. Oh, that's cool, but it may not be cool with the other stuff. So how do they learn that those aesthetics um, because again, going back to the days when people worked in studios around yeah. other engineers, they could walk into a control room, hang mm -hmm. out with their friends, go, oh, that's how you got that bass on. It works really well yeah. on this country rock record. Now they're isolated. You, you do what I recommend a lot of my students consulting people do. Study the masters. And if you're working on a track, say, hey, I'm working on something that's contemporary country, which is kind of Justin Bieber or whatever sound now, but I mean, even whatever it is, or I'm okay. doing something heavy metal or I'm doing something, you know, neo soul. If you're working on a track like that, pull up a target of something that's you think is a benchmark for that. And ideally, like in a similar tempo and things like that. And kind of take off your own creative hat. This is this is building your craft, not mm -hmm. your artistry at this point. Because you need the you need the the craft to, right. to for the artistry. To execute the artistry yeah. well. Yeah. And one of the things is like throw away your own taste on everything and just start listening back and forth to yours and your target of what's a great great mix. Mm -hmm. And go back and forth and at first you'll think I'm I'm the worst mixer that ever walked planet Earth. But then okay, think about what do they do? What do they change? And okay, how bright is that vocal or how not bright is that vocal? How you know, is there a lot of low end on that kick drum or is there not a lot? Is the guitar really loud or is it tiny and thin and buried behind the piano? And do whatever you can to just keep working back and forth to get your mix. And this is not an experiment you do in 20 minutes. Thank you. This for is saying a, that. this is an experiment you do maybe for three days. I mean you know, somebody like me who's had a chance to mix more records than most people, I can do it, could do it quicker, but certainly not when I was starting out. I found it took mm -hmm. me a year of sitting behind a console yep. pretty much seven days a week for the better yep. part of a year until I, the light bulb went on. It was almost like an epiphany where mm -hmm. I went, oh, now I understand EQ. Because uh, I'm still to... waiting for that light bulb to like fully come <laughs> I really, on. I, I remember the day I could literally yeah. shut my eyes and picture the control room and, mm -hmm. and who was in it with yeah. me because it, it was revelatory that all of a sudden I went, oh, so if I wanted to sound like that, then I should do this. All of a sudden it became clear to me, but you can't learn what EQ sounds like. Yeah in a weekend or yeah. a night or yeah. by watching one YouTube and, But video. the big thing is the great mixes and great productions that are part of that, they make us feel something that's not there. Right. They, they create this experience. And like, one of the things that people don't realize is if you're doing this, say, on a rock record and go back and forth and back and forth, and then you realize your favorite rock record, that the guitars have no low end at all. Mm -hmm. okay, we'll go back to like Led Zeppelin. Those are really thin, clean guitars on virtually every Led Zeppelin song you've ever heard of. <laughs> and you think, oh, massive, giant, Les Paul. 
The reality, they're not. And that yeah. doesn't mean that it's empirically better or worse than another option. But it, the great thing about those is they make you believe and feel that the guitars are giant. And then so you go and mix your record and trying to do a classic rock style mix and you make your guitars gargantuan and wonder why doesn't yours have that air and breath of a classic Led Zeppelin tune. It's like, well, you just have a giant guitar that's eating up the vocal range and the bass range and the kick drum range. So it's amazing when you have these epiphany moments because you when you go back and forth, literally, it might take you two days before you realize there's something like oh my god i never realized that there's that little delay happening on the guitar mm -hmm. or i never realized this frequency is scooped out on the bass i never would have thought to scoop that out and it's those moments where again it could take you 20 minutes or three days to get there where you realize oh, wow yeah there's reverb but it's dark yeah and and that's one thing Taxi people, taxi people. <laughs> uh, I listen to lots of your stuff at the road rally, and I love it. And almost all. Oh, so, I feel a butt coming. So I just love it, period. Okay. But the thing that I can <laughs> offer is some help on this is it's amazing how many people have really bright reverbs right. in their productions, which you don't find on successful records after 1992. Mm -hmm. So it's so it's one of those things where, yes, of course, I love people to send me their stuff to mix and all of that. But so many of the things that people are wrestling with and, you know, making their stuff sound not professional the, the or, answers are out or there. broadcast quality yeah. is really listen to your reverb. Go whether it's uh, whether it's Green Day or Celine Dion or, you know, because they sound a lot alike. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but but truth is, and they'll all be kind of different, but it's that thing like, okay, you just put this reverb on. What does your reverb sound like compared to one of those artists? Oh, also, we can go so deep. We could do an episode on any one of these topics yes. and go deeply into the weeds on them. And we're not going to teach you in 90 minutes how to be a great engineer. Um, but we can stop you from making some rookie mistakes. And Scott Hansen, good good move on. I prefer dumb reverbs rather than bright ones. <laughs> but, yes, studies, uh, study records you love like a student. Okay, That's... let's talk about a device that is great for studying these things. Um, uh, I can't remember the name. It's something AB. It's software. Oh, yes. Uh, it's made in the UK. I can't remember the name of it. I wrote yes, it down. Yes, I think my buddy sorry. Ian Shepard might actually make that one. What? I'm sorry. I'm trying to help you out. Oh, here it is. I wrote it down. Magic AB by Sample Magic. Okay, so I, I've not used it myself, but I've read a considerable amount about it. Um, and there's one other type of software that's similar. Um, but it seems uh, uh, Magic AB seems to be the, the leader mm -hmm. in its class. Um, and it, you can line up your mix and a bunch of other reference mm -hmm. mixes and you yep. can actually graphically see where the uh, differentiations are you can hear it uh, i think that's a great tool yeah but once people realize okay i'm deficient uh or i i need to carve out some low mids mm -hmm. to get rid of some of that honkiness then they have to understand eq curves mm -hmm. because yeah. they have to understand where honk is at or yep. where edginess is at mm -hmm. um so how does somebody learn EQ? Because like I said, it took me a year. Um, how does somebody who's working in a home studio 
other than taking every instrument, which we've talked about before, taking a guitar and just letting it roll and solo and just sitting there and sweeping the EQ and going, oh, that's when it starts to sound honky, mm -hmm. that's when it doesn't, or that's when it starts to sound really brittle on the top, and that's when it doesn't. How do you learn that? Because as you and I and any other experienced engineer knows, you get to a point in your career where you can practically look at something on a meter and know that's a flute, and it's, you know what I mean? You can like pre-EQ it in your mind and solve the problem or make it sound pretty. How do you train yourself to, part of it is the physics yeah. of sound, mm -hmm. but not everybody watching the show wants to sit down and read a book about the physics of sound, right? because that's old school. Um, and they're looking for a quick instant solution. How would you recommend home recording people, which most of our members and most of our viewers mm -hmm. are, how do they learn that, you know, rolling off 200 to 700 hertz gets rid of honk in the low end. Mm -hmm. How do they know that 4.3 sounds really pretty? 4.3 kilohertz sounds really good on um, acoustic guitar, maybe. Okay. So we got a couple hours, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I think I'm going to keep coming back to a default answer a lot okay. today for some reason because I think it is something that I'm, I'm riled up. <laughs> um, think, really study the masters. And this is in records you love by comparing back and forth. Okay, um, but what if you're comparing old records by Led Zeppelin to a modern sounding recording today? Uh, should they try and keep stuff in the same decade at least? Apples and apples? Uh, well, well, in a way, the um, one definitely level match and and level match on feeling more than what your meters tell you. Mm -hmm. So just pull one down again. You can have some software tools to do that. But part of it is is study the craft. I mean. And you wouldn't say, oh, I really want to learn about uh, EQing acoustic guitars and pull up your favorite Metallica records. So if you want to study about, okay, this is the techniques they were doing in the late 60s through the mid 70s. I really want to learn what they did and how that can apply to my own thing. So pull that up if you're working on something kind of similar. So it should be in the same genre and it should be ideally something you love that you're going to go, oh yeah, I really appreciate this and I would love to learn how they did this. But one of the big things too is, and this isn't natural, but it is to me because I do it so much, you need to start learning to think subtractively because what you can do subtractively is more important than additive. And in EQ terms, figuring out what you can cut is more important than what you can boost. And learning what to cut will train your ear way better than boosting. So going back to my thing about what you're working on, something you think is amazing. Go back and most people will go and listen to, you know, a, a mix, professional mix they love in their own going, oh, wow, that one, that's so much brighter than mine or that bass is so much boomier. And they'll just start boosting and all of that. You really got to train yourself not to do that. Not that there's something wrong with boosting in the end, but probably what's going on is you've got a lot of junk in your mix that they don't have, much more than the fact that they've got a lot more of something else. So really going back and forth, and this could take hours and go, wow, yeah, when I listen to mine versus this one, or even these five <laughs> great mm. mixes, wow, mine all have this little honking nasalness or this boomy woofiness or this pinched high frequencies. And when you hunt around to find that thing that yours has too much of that these great target references don't have, you, you really start to go, oh, wow. Yeah, it was that around 230 hertz thing that, yeah, mine my mixes have way more of that than the mixers doing records I love. 
And really learning to find what the trouble frequency is will train your ear so much better than just boosting up stuff that might sound cool. Yeah. And so really, really work on that. And then really go and start uh, <clears throat> looking at things about how bright are the guitars on modern country versus, you know, old Led Zeppelin or old folk rock or things like that. And, and really compare those back and forth. The one thing I will say on this, so people can have something easy to take away with this, is spend more time working with wide EQs, wide bells. So in the DAW, it's so easy to like turn something into some crazy little spike and work with right. that. And sort of back, you know, when you and I were coming up on consoles, you know, except for when we were like sitting on a new SSL or something, right. it was all, oh, here's a big wide EQ. So if you were going to boost or cut a frequency, you were going to boost like this giant bunch of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. yeah. Or cut this bunch of stuff, which seems a little limiting. But the one thing, and we don't have the couple hours to explain it, but whenever you start doing really narrow stuff, especially in boosting, you're introducing a lot of phase shift. And sorry, uh, if you're if you're not if you're not grabbing all of this, it's okay. But hold on, phase shift <laughs> makes stuff sound crummy. <laughs> you know, when things sound more like that, or like phase shift generally just sounds bad. And the the more you have EQs that are narrow versus wide, uh, and the same thing with a high pass filter like this versus like this. The wide ones or the gradual ones will sound much smoother, so you can get away with much more pleasing. Much to more the pleasing. Air. Musical is the term a lot of people will use, and so especially if you're going to try boosting, you know, experiment with the wide things. Because if you saved up all your money for a knee, you know, vintage Neve EQ or, right. or got a plug-in emulation, let it sound like that. That's going to be a big wide EQ. Yeah. An API is going to be nice and wide. All those sort of like ooh ah yeah. tone EQs. So a lot of people will get into like. You know, I'll see some people's sessions. They've got like 16 tiny little cuts and boosts, and it's kind of crazy. And they're wondering, why doesn't it sound like this great Led Zeppelin record? Like, you mean the one where they had a high EQ and a low EQ <laughs> and uh, barely anything else? Yeah. And so a lot of this really super geek, geeking out kind of EQ cre sometimes creates a lot more problems than it's. That's it, really uh, what it comes down to yeah. is you don't have to be so geeky and you don't have to go so deep into the weeds common sense will tell you a lot of stuff I, I, something people rarely talk about that we should is the octave that you're working in mm -hmm. um you know let's say that you've got uh first of all tuning the drums mm -hmm. makes a big difference as to how you hear will hear the drums mm -hmm. in the mix so you got to think about that before you record the song have the band run it down and notice is, is the bass player sometimes just by merely asking the bass player to take it down an octave mm -hmm. all yep. of a sudden your bottom end changes yep. really dramatically yep. and you don't have to sit there for a week EQing yep. but people don't go back to the root of the production yep. and look at things as simple as the arrangement or the octaves that people are working in yep. and you have that chance every time you do an overdub mm -hmm. especially for things like guitar overdubs yep. um, really really easy to use a capo and, and just find a different place on the neck, yeah. get a different sound and go, wow, I don't even need EQ. Yeah, because the best best pop producers uh, are doing the same thing that the best orchestral arrangers are doing. Right. Because you, you don't, you don't, you know, have, you know, the cello play up in the viola range. Right. <laughs> you know, you don't, yeah. you don't get the viola to play in the violin range all the time. You sort of give everybody their spot. 
And it's the same sort of thing too. Again, if you if you're overdubbing a guitar, if you already have a big, fat, dirty electric guitar, yeah, another one probably won't make your mix sound bigger. No, but, but if a you're cleaner, dying, yeah. thinner one might actually make your mix sound taller Absolutely. and more and exciting. And then you can pan them, you know, far left, far right, mm -hmm. and, and find a level where they complement each yep. other, mm -hmm. and you're a genius. Exactly. Um, Okay, let's talk about, let's take it to kind of home studio setup for a minute. Yep. Um, so many of our members have relatively basic home studios. There I am. Uh, relatively basic home studios with mm -hmm. not much more than a, a laptop or a desktop computer, um, some sort of MIDI keyboard, um, a bunch of software, two or three microphones, usually like a 57 for mm -hmm. a dynamic and maybe a two or three hundred dollar condenser mic. Um, they've got a $500 pair of monitors, mm -hmm. and I, I see this over and over where people wonder why their stuff doesn't sound like records, but they're committing um, mortal sins the way they set up their monitors. Um, like the monitors could be up here or down here, so mm -hmm. they're not actually blowing at them in the right plane. Yep. Um, they're too far apart, they're too close together, they're not angled correctly, they're not getting um, the right distance of, of the, you know, where's yeah. the listening position relative to the monitors, and then the most fatal error of all, that even the guys who read uh, gear sluts just don't think about, checking to make sure that your speakers are wired in phase. Yes. I really think that 50% of all people wouldn't know what that sounds like, mm -hmm. but they should check because merely reversing the positive and negative on the back of the speaker, yeah. if your kick drum's not coming down the middle, mm -hmm. then something's wrong. If it sounds like it's coming equally out of two speakers, then none of your mixes are ever going to sound good because your monitors yeah, are Yeah, it, it is so, amazing with my consulting work where I'll go into studios. Yeah, find and, it all the and time, that's, right? that's the main thing where it's like, yeah, just... And it, it's a simple to do. You you bought the wrong cable down at the guitar center on one of them, or uh, yeah, or yeah, speaker cables where you have a power amp and you just mixed them up. It could happen in the best of us, but yeah. it is one of those amazing things. And uh, yeah, if you basically if you put on a great popper rock mix and check it in mono, it should still the low end should still sound pretty big and full. How do you check things in mono if you're working in, in Pro Tools and a laptop and blah, blah, blah? Is there like an old school mono button? It, it would depend on the, the software and the interface. Yeah. But a lot of them will have, you know, your, your master stereo track with pan controls on them. So, so you could just pan them, pan them in the middle. middle and see what happens. Uh, it, um, that is like recording 101. Mm -hmm. By the way, if I've never mentioned this book before, there's an old school book that I was, uh, I took a recording class when I got my first job in the industry. I was required to take a recording class that they taught at Criteria Studios at night. And the book was called Modern Recording Techniques by Robert Runstein. That's, that's a dinosaur book now, but you know what? That's where I learned about things like checking your mix in mono. Yeah. Um, making sure that you're, all those basics, you can't build a house without a good foundation. Yeah, if you, if you, if you're at a thrift store or something and you see some old crusty audiobook, yeah, buy it because so many of the the newer books will just talk you. And then this drop down menu, click on the third one, right. and okay, that'll teach you how to get sound to come out of your DAW. But it doesn't teach you that stuff about okay, here's how frequencies are interacting with each other. Here's how dynamics can alter things. These are, you know, things to because the the physics of setting up your monitoring well hasn't changed. 
Yeah. You know, it, and it's right. unlikely to change in our lifetime. Uh, we, you know, we've got some new tools for trying to fix some of those problems, but the core of it is the same. So on, on short of it, to that, for people who, who might not know, there's kind of a general starting point. And it's, it's tough because a lot of times your home studios, you've negotiated with your, with your spouse. Okay, you get this little corner of the living room for your <laughs> hobby. I get this one for mine. And this right. is our family TV spot. Um, but it, the general consensus, if you're not sure what to do with the speakers, is generally an equilateral triangle is a good starting point where the distance from, you know, your third eye and the tweeter on the left and the tweeter on the right and the distance from tweeter to tweeter is about the same. Right. And so if you get those three roughly equal, and you don't need to fret about it with a laser pointer or anything, <laughs> uh, and have the tweeters kind of at about your ear level. And the tweeters are the small little tiny speaker in yeah, there we go. You can <laughs> exhibit A. Yeah, I, don't, I can't see. Anyway. <laughs> so yeah, so the tweeters, the little, the little tiny speaker in your monitors, that at about ear level is a really good starting point. Which, by the way, just because people are going to write in and say, "Oh, Lasco speakers are, are you know in the um, vertical position," no. If I were working in a control room, I would make sure that they are at eye level or ear level mm -hmm. and then I would have the tweeters on the outside and I would have the woofers on in the middle because most of that low end energy is generally pan dead center. Yeah. So yeah. why put the yeah. and there's a, there's outside. a few speakers that are designed for alternate positions but yeah, it's a good starting point but I can't afford them. Yeah. But if you if you if, if you kind of follow that basic equilateral triangle tweeters at your speakers it's a really good starting point in, in any home studio okay, so or pro studio. I, I see people that will go out. Uh, I mean, look, if you can afford it and it's your passion and you want to go build a room within a room and use doors with, um, you know, seals on them and, and uh, uh, what am I talking about? Um, you know, floating floors, all that really expensive studio stuff that you would find in a multi-million dollar room. You don't need it at home. I hear stuff that comes in from taxi members where literally they're using nothing more than a kitchen table, a MIDI keyboard, a computer, two or three microphones, $500 monitors, and it sounds really, really good because mm -hmm. they've developed an ear. But if you detect that your bass is consistently low in your mix, it sounds great at the moment, in the moment, while you're mm -hmm. mixing it, um, and you don't think it's a mix issue, but you think that it's caused by your monitoring situation. Yeah. Uh, is it fair to say a good place to start is looking to see what your speakers, your monitors are sitting on? Are they causing any torsional transmission of yeah. bass? Is, uh, I see a lot of people that will put a pair of monitors right up against a wall. They put them on a hard surface and the back of the speaker is six inches from a wall. And what they don't realize is most of the bass is down by their feet because mm -hmm. it kind of loops around and ends up down there. So is it a fair statement to say by isolating your monitors, um, moving them out from the wall, and if you can't move them out from the wall, maybe throw something like moving blankets on the floor to soak up some bottom end, and you'll be um, pleasantly surprised at uh, your listening environment. Are there cheap ways to solve those problems without building? There, there, there is. I mean, one one actual product is a company called Isoacoustics. Right. Um, I have uh, all of my monitors on those, from mm -hmm. my three hundred pound each mastering monitors to my Yamaha NS10s are on those. They're like a hundred bucks. And they're, it's pretty amazing how much they can improve sound. And it's, it's that same thing. They're basically little floating springs. 
mm-hmm. in a way, and they reduce the transmission because here at this big table we're at, you know, if we're bat- mixing hip hop, this whole table is going to actually be one giant speaker right. because of all the vibrations on that. Um, the thing about you know space from the wall. Again, when your spouse has negotiated with you that you get this little corner from here to here, sometimes you can't, oh, let me move the speakers out three feet. And right. I mean, even you have them here six, five, six inches from a window. Well, that's um, casual listening <laughs> yes, environment yes. versus if I were making records, um, I, they but, wouldn't be. But, yeah. but the important thing is to experiment with that. You know, being able to just move your speakers another six inches away from the wall or even to the wall, it's one of those things that makes a huge dramatic effect. Mm-hmm. Um, on how your speakers sound and it costs you zero dollars that's one of those things i love because it can make such a massive Man. impact in improving your monitor quality and cost you nothing but an hour or two of your time to run some experiments on that um okay so if you had a typical 10 foot by 12 uh 10 by 12 spare bedroom mm-hmm. in an apartment um, and you weren't worried so much about sound leaking out to the next door neighbor because you work during the day when nobody's home. Yep. So that's not an issue. Um, where do you set up your home studio if you've got that 10 by 12 bedroom? Do you do it in a corner so that the walls no. are doing this? Do you set it up against a flat wall? You know, um, yeah. There's a lot that comes into play because even crazy things like, do you have a closet in the back and wh- where are the doors located? Right. But if we were just sitting down looking at that rectangle right there, um, I would uh, generally, I would have the speakers firing the length of the room, mm-hmm. meaning the longer walls will be on your left and right. Um, and in your sort of typical setup, the starting point, your head where you're sitting should be roughly about a third into the room. Okay. And that can be uh, that can be the front third or the back third. So uh, now you lost me. So let's say so you're twelve in that foot room. room. You huh? could be four in a twelve foot length right. room. You could be four feet from the front wall or four feet from the back wall. Really? Yeah. Uh, and still facing forward the same direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with all that space if you if you're a third, two thirds of the way back? Uh huh. Um, and you've got all this space in front of you, um, what do you do with that space? Um, I mean, you'll probably want to put some absorption on the walls, side okay. walls, to cut down some reflections. But generally, again, we're talking very rough ballparks. That sort of third the way into the room is an ideal spot for the least amount of problems with low frequency buildup and phase issues. Because in a small room like that, which uh, again, if you have that, that's awesome that you have that room. But you're 100% guaranteed to have incredible low-end problems. Yeah. Like literally differences of 30, 40 dB uh, within an huge. octave, which is huge. It's yeah. guaranteed to happen. And that's sort of roughly the third into or out of the room is general generally going to be the spot where those are the least evident. Um, the worst place you could probably do is right in the middle of it. That's where, generally speaking, your low frequency problems will be the worst. And you're gonna you're asking for phase issues because you're equidistant from things that are from reflective services. Exactly. And you're gonna be at the null point in the middle. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's see if I've got anything else on that. Um, oh, uh, we talked about speaker phase and checking things in mono, so we got that done. Um, okay. And the next question I've got is: This subject could easily be an entire show. Bria, can you check the AC, please? I think it was that time of day where it clicked off. Uh, but in a simple overview, overview, 
Uh, can you address things like how drums are tuned and the octaves? Uh, we kind of talked about that. You know, I'm going to skip that. Yeah. Um, here's something that I would bet 80 to 90% of home recording enthusiasts don't know anything about, which is the Fletcher-Munson curve. Yeah. Um, for us, that was probably day number two of learning about recording. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what the Fletcher-Munson curve is? How uh, talk about it in practical terms and how it can affect mixing. Okay, so in short, the Fletcher-Munson curve is uh, as as audio playback levels get lower. And then or, teach this to fifth grader. Okay, so <laughs> uh, I forget the exact. It's something around between seventy-five and eighty-five dB sound pro SPL. So they're basically there's there's sound a sound pressure. Sorry, sound pressure level. Yes, sorry, five-year-olds. Um, fifth grader. <laughs> fifth grader, sorry. Um, but basically, there's kind of a medium listening level. Uh, our hearing, if we're still young and healthy enough and have good hearing, is fairly linear, meaning, you know, bass, mid-range, and high frequency is all about what you're hearing is about, what's being played back is about what we hear. Um, and as we turn things up louder, that stays pretty consistent. So if you have a balance between highs, lows, and mids, they stay pretty balanced. But as we start to get quieter, uh, it actually starts to do this. Mm -hmm. We actually become less sensitive to uh, high and low frequencies. So what's something that was flat listening starts to, let's do, <laughs> there you go, uh, starts to get more and more narrow, uh, being focused right around 1K. Okay, because which is an offensive part of the mid-range in many it, cases, but it's important. It's an offensive part of the mid-range, but it's also the sound of that baby crying in the next room. You know, it's also the sound of me going... So I would throw the baby out with the bathwater <laughs> personally, but... Uh, but yeah, it, it's that sound of me saying, Michael, saber-toothed tiger about to eat your head. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, part, it's where we are the most sensitive and articulate to how we as humans communicate. Um, so... You, you need to keep in mind that when people listen to your stuff at low levels, uh, the mid-range will be more prominent than when people listen to it at a higher level. So why do so many people, and I do subscribe to this, although I didn't at the time that I was still actively working in the studio, uh, monitor at low levels and mix at low levels? Well, um, everything sounds better loud. It does. Um, <laughs> and that's Fletcher Munson at work. Yeah, that's part of it. Um, the science behind it is when I'm when I'm not being an idiot, which happens every once in a while, um, I actually mix at good modest modest levels. Uh -huh. uh, and what I've found is if you get a track sounding great uh, at a quiet listening level, it usually sounds great when you crank it up loud. Mm -hmm. I haven't found that to be the opposite case. You know, I unfortunately I've never had a chance to you know sit at his feet and watch him mix. But Andy Wallace, who I think is one of the greatest rock mixers of all time. Apparently, he mixes at a level where if you're whispering, you're really interrupting his mixing process. Isn't it ironic then that they built these giant monitors, like old Westlake monitors, uh -huh. you know, with like two twelves or two fifteens, you know, and, and they were roughly the size of half a coffin, and, and they had you know thousand watt mm -hmm. uh, buyer triamps on. It's yeah. like that was to make your shirt move and impress yeah. your clients. I mean, well, the funny thing is actually my mastering speakers are that big. Are actually have dual 15 inch, wow, three ways, thousand watt power amps just for the low frequency drivers in each side. And, um, and how loud do you listen? Not, not very loud. 
So why do you need it? <laughs> because they, I, I have these particular ones because they actually sound really good and have really extended full range. So okay. when when I'm mastering for something, when I'm mastering for somebody, I really need to know what's going on at 30 hertz. I need to know what's going on, you know, as high as my ears go these days. Right. <laughs> so I actually have them not because they can be stupid loud. They can be, mm -hmm. but because they're detailed in full range, um, and it's always good to check because truth is your stuff will occasionally get heard. You know, the, the college kid who's going to blast rock records in the dorm room. And, you do know, they the, still do that. Yeah. Some, I, but, I'm so like, I, I keep talking about someday when I retire and I'm going to go back to making records and just because I love doing mm -hmm. it, it's my happy place. But I, I worry about all the things that guys of our generation, and I'm older than you are, so I'm a generation half a generation um, older as far as learning studio stuff. Um, nowadays, people listen on, I just saw a statistic the other day that like 50% of music is listened to on laptops or, mm -hmm. or mobiles, uh, phones. So that's 50% of all music consumed. And, and that didn't include earbuds and headphones, mm -hmm. which was like another 24%. So ostensibly 75% of all music consumed today is consumed out of something the size of a quarter or an earbud. Whereas back in our day, people would come home, fire up a, a doobie or drink a glass of wine and sit down and listen to their awesome new speakers that mm -hmm. they spent a fortune on and sit there and listen to a whole album from start to finish, loving their new cartridge on their tone arm. Mm -hmm. That so rarely happens. I mean, obviously, people who are true aficionados would listen that way. So why do we go to all this trouble and having, you know, uh, mastering monitors that go down to 30 hertz when my 17-year-old's going to hear it on her iPhone? How yeah. to respond to this, because I have a strong opinion, and I'm trying to phrase it. Um, okay. My experience has been recordings that sound great uh, translate really, really well. On everything. Because in the, in the last 24 hours, I've listened to things on my, I have $30,000 speakers in my mastering room. I've listened to things, I'm like, wow, look, look how they did with the bass, look how they did the low end and things like that. And this morning before I came out here, I had my laptop on my lap doing emails listening to one of my favorite psychedelic furs record going wow it's i love these tunes the production's great the thing is it 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 upsets me when people sort of dismiss the medium and as an excuse to to not, not care yeah because real reality you know you know if i'm at the gym you know with obviously not enough but if <laughs> i'm in the, but you know and if i'm wearing like earbuds and have a little um <laughs> you know, iPod mini or something. Yeah. And I've got, you know, I love like things like that, just having stuff on shuffle mode. Yeah. And the truth is amazing sounding records come on and they're different. You know, a great production will be even on earbuds on the treadmill. Some records will be like, wow, that's a beautiful record. That sounds beautiful. And then another one will come up. Wow. Yeah. That kind of sounds harsh and unpleasant and mm -hmm. all of these sorts of things. So my, my own personal opinion is it, it translates and, and truth is, hopefully that one person who just got turned on to your music with Spotify on their laptop will then you know, get to a point in their life, which may be later that day or five years from now, where they want to dive into it on a deeper level and have a nice playback system. In a perfect world, I hope that happens. Or, um, or they're going to go see a band and they're blasting music, you know, on the club PA between 
between bands. Right. And uh, they're going to be giant subs, and it's going to be loud, and it's going to be all of those, or it's going to be at a dance club, or those so kinds of things. So much of what you and I talk about, or, or the world at large talks about regarding engineering and, and mixing and production, um, it's almost like there are two worlds out there. Uh, I would be willing to bet a lot of money. I mean, you know, like a $1,000, a $10,000 bet that you take somebody who's made EDM or dance records all synthesized, all, you know, computerized, all automated, put them in a remote truck uh, outside of a concert hall and say, go ahead and record that mm -hmm. orchestra yeah. with the choir. And you could take a stranger off the street and it probably wouldn't sound any better or worse mm -hmm. because their chops are learned. And I'm not saying this to offend anybody, but it's a different skill set. Yeah. And I think that the art form has been lost of people recording acoustic organic instruments mm -hmm. and that are a real engineer um, can do a jazz record and they understand uh, the dynamics of a jazz band and the interaction and the air in the room. Yeah. They understand an orchestral situation. They understand EDM. Like, I couldn't do EDM to save my life. Mm -hmm. But in today's world, with so much stuff coming down a wire, I believe that they can differentiate themselves and make themselves sound better by understanding the trick of remiking. Uh, mm -hmm. I yeah, hear yeah. pianos come in on taxi member stuff yeah. where beautiful piano samples, probably the best money can buy. Yeah. And it's still really obvious to me that it's a sample. It's a really pretty sample, yeah. uh -huh. a great sounding sample. And, and people are like, you would remike that? Yeah, I would. I, I would play that piano over a pair of decent speakers in an empty room that was a decent sounding empty room and, and grab, you know, a stereo pair of microphones and put it back into the console, bring it back into a pair of faders. It, just that little trick, breathing air back in. So is that something, am I being too fanatical and too nostalgic, or is that something that you think is a good idea? No, I think it's good, and, and you might hear people describe what you're talking about as reamping as well. Right. Um, and I, I think if you're trying to create something where it feels more organic, feels more like people together in a room, uh, yeah, it's actually a really or just cool taking a, an organic instrument that yeah. is a sample and trying, you know. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, some sometimes, like in EDM, there's no desire whatsoever for it to sound right. like a group of people in a room. Right. So maybe maybe the sample, maybe you just run it through some distortion plugin or a filter, and yeah, that's I mean, groovy. That's the context for which it's. But yeah, but but in terms of a lot of the quality of how things blend together. Um, is kind of determined by that air moving around in the room. So when we listen to records that might be benchmarks from uh, a different situation or a different time, a lot of that is air moving around a room, being picked up by microphones, sort of the, you know, the, the little nonlinearities or just the weirdness mm -hmm. <laughs> that happens of things bouncing in a room is like our favorite Metallica record or our favorite Eagles record or our favorite... Uh, anything like that. So getting things out into a room uh, can really go a long way to giving us more of that feeling or the traditional ways things blend if, if, our, if our targets are those kinds of things. Um, let's also talk about getting a great vocal sound, which I realize is largely contingent on the song and mm -hmm. the octave and the singer and the, the tempo and the dynamics at which the speaker or singer is singing. All those things are variables that really do come into play in a big way. Yeah. But um, 
let's talk about working with headphones. Uh, you've got a vocalist, they're out in the studio, they're a little trepidatious, and their performance is not great. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got a microphone that sounds good. You've taken your, your favorite, you know, this is my shoot from the hip mic where I start, and unless, if there aren't problems, I'll stick with it. But the singer sounds trepidatious. They're not really emoting, they're not really giving uh, the dynamic performance that they would on stage. What are some techniques that you use to draw that singer out, make them feel comfortable in the studio while retaining a, a great sound on the microphone. Well, um, and the, you got to answer in one sentence. Uh, I'm kidding. No. I'm the, totally the, well, kidding. I'll, I'll, my first sentence will be a disclaimer: okay. is the great performance is way, 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 way more important than the great vocal sound to me. That's a, I completely agree and, with that. But first thing I would try is get them the heck off headphones. Okay. And uh, I was hoping you'd go there. Yeah. Uh, so. I've recently told members of the staff one of my old techniques, which I won't say right now because I want to know what your answer is, but what are some techniques or a technique that you've used to get singers off the headphones in the studio while overdubbing a vocal? I, I throw an SM58 in their hand, crank up my big speakers, and have them rock out. Okay. <laughs> um, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe put it on a mic stand if they're more comfortable with that. Yeah. But I, I think a lot of people make that out to be a bigger deal than it is and the reality is if you're using what we the the cardioid or unidirectional mics right. which are you know the ones that are kind of rejecting more from the back and the sides if you're not pointing them right at the speakers you know they're actually going part of their job is they're going to start rejecting or you know uh reducing or attenuating some of that that bleed in there but the the crazy thing is hardly anyone practices with headphones on yeah they hardly anyone uses uh headphones live i mean it's that's changing now with in-ears and things like that yeah but you've got people who have been working singing songs for 20 years hearing their sound come out of their mouth into their ears and or in the rehearsal space with speakers coming over there and now we're going to capture that beautiful thing they do by putting them in a completely foreign environment. Right. With the microphone this close and yeah. headphones on in a darkened box that's six feet by six feet. Oh, and, oh, and, and uh, get them out of that vocal booth. Yeah, I hate vocal booths for the most part. Yeah, vocal bo booths to me are a last resort. Um, I, there's rarely times where you... The only time I really put people into a vocal booth is if we're, say, tracking the singer yeah. with the drummer and the loud electric guitars or things like that. But for overdubs, like, why not just let them hang out in the control room with you? Or, or if you have a nice, big, comfortable space out there. But vocal booths just sound so terrible, especially like a small vocal booth covered in, you know, gray <laughs> computer packing foam is just sort of like your worst case scenario for tracking vocals. Yeah, or turquoise shag carpeting. <laughs> yeah. That's another one that sounds great. <laughs> but really, it's a crazy thing of, you know, put put a good microphone that they're used to singing to at concerts and clubs, whatever. Yeah. Turn up the speakers and have them sing. And people think that, that that's crazy. It's like, well, not really. Uh, because a lot of big artists are doing it, you know. You, you know, if you two's doing something, it's kind of not that unprofessional if you did it, you right? Know? And so there, it actually happens a lot. People have this crazy idea that you need to make everything pristine and perfect and all of that, um, but none of that matters if the vocal performance isn't awesome. And you would just be amazed how many big superstars are tracking without headphones on. 
and just hearing the sound come out of the speakers. In a perfect world, when I'm mixing a record, I would rather have it clean. Yeah. So technically it's easier. There's some more things I can do for mixing the vocal if it doesn't have the other music blended in to the vocal mic. But I have no interest in mixing a bad or mediocre vocal performance. I would rather wrestle with a great vocal performance that has tons of technical problems than have an easy time mixing a lifeless, boring vocal performance. Yep. No argument from but, me on and, any of that. And stuff. dynamic, you know, I'll use both, whatever, but dynamic mics like like a Shure SM57 or 58, Shure SM7, uh, those mics tend to have really good rejection. Uh, so you'll get less of the, the bleed of the band into the, uh, into the vocal mic. I, I saw, oh, an old Fleetwood Mac video some point over the weekend, and they were singing into Sennheiser 441s, which for mm -hmm. my money, sorry yep. Sennheiser, but for my money, it was the least serviceable, <laughs> least usable, least sexy sounding microphone. Yeah, uh, but Stevie I, Nicks used to cut I on those. Know. Yeah. Uh -huh. I, I could never understand that, but... Yeah, it's a long black and silver mic, and yeah, it just it, it defined the word flat and boring mm -hmm. to me. It's like uh, if I needed a room mic, it was not even good enough for that. Mm -hmm. I literally wouldn't allow <laughs> my assistant to set up a four forty one as a room uh. mic. Let's see how we're doing time. We've got a few more minutes, then we'll open it up to questions. Um, my friend Rob Shirelli, who I know, mm -hmm. you yeah, know yeah. Uh, Rob was on the show, and if I'm not mistaken, I could be misquoting, but I think I've got this right. He said he cuts vocals frequently now where he uses no limiting, no compression, uh, and I believe that he said that he rides the vocal uh, because with automation you can. I, I can't wait till the day when I can try that because automation in my day was pretty worthless, but what do you think about that? Um, not yet, Well, first of all, I should state that a lot of times compression, more so than limiting, compression is used as a vocal effect. It, it produces a result that sounds really good in pop records. But if you want to capture the true essence of the voice and you don't want the vocal pegging your meters, just riding the vocal, um, does that work? I mean, I don't well, think Rob's a liar. But... I mean, Rob's great at what he does. He and I disagree on a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, but and that sounds like it might be one of them. Well, no. I mean, again, if it gets him, he, he makes great records. So yeah. that's that's all that needs to be said. But one thing about pegging your meters is just turn your mic preamp down. There, you should never use a compressor to prevent peaking. You should just turn your darn mic preamp down. Uh, just set it so when the singer's singing in their loudest parts, you're going up about two thirds the way up the meters. And uh, yes, you, you should never worry about that. Getting into compression should be about creativity, mm -hmm. not about preventing clipping, because there's just really easy ways to avoid clipping, turn stuff down. Yeah. Um, and I love compression, absolutely love, 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 love compression, and I I'm use right, I'm tons of it. Um, and um, and it, it's kind of, it's totally fine if people have a workflow that doesn't involve a lot of it. Um, but going back to one of those things where when the most successful people in the world are doing something a particular way, it's maybe worth considering that as well. You know, when you have somebody like a Chris Lord Algae, who's probably the most successful mixer to ever walk planet Earth, you know, we'll, we'll chain up two to three compressors, one after the other, and be hitting them all pretty hard and also hitting your stereo master bus pretty hard and and you know it's not uncommon for me to chain up three compressors on a lead vocal and you know if if i end up compressing something 
over 30 dB, only vocal, that doesn't phase me at all. Sometimes I don't, sometimes I do. But if you listen to it in solo, it's gonna you're gonna hear the sucking. You listen to it in the track, and it sounds like the person standing yeah four inches in front of you. Exactly, and, and when you also think about like people, uh, yeah, just let's take a look at the most successful people in the world. When you look at guys like Chris Lord Algae or Bob Clearmount, you know, some of the greatest mixers of all time, you know, and they're knocking out, you know, sometimes up to three songs a day. Mm. Um, they're they're not in there you know i look i see some people's automation where it's obvious they've spent weeks mm-hmm. kind of automating everything and if that makes them happy and get some results they love it's great they're charging by the hour <laughs> yeah yeah so maybe maybe that maybe that's it um but that is one of the big mistakes people make is using tons of compression is extremely professional Right. You know, when when you hear broadcast quality stuff in taxi terms, you're almost always hearing stuff that's been aggressively compressed. But you have to know what you're doing to do that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, let, let's talk about one other item and then we'll go to uh, questions from the viewers. And it's also compression related. Um, people doing parallel compression where they'll take a, a subgroup, a, a drum kit, let's say, or maybe even a whole entire mix mm-hmm. and route everything to um, a stereo pair of compressors. Um, compress the piss out of it and then bring the return from the compressors back to another stereo pair of faders uh, and bring them up ever so gradually to the point where you can just barely and I'm talking right on that fine line of barely hearing the effect Um, back in my day that wasn't done so I've never had the, the ability to do that but I hear that people love it and it sounds really good Mm -hmm. it sounds really great so why doesn't that cause phase problems because you've got the original sound source and now you're introducing this highly compressed identical sound source and then bringing it up to the point of just barely being audible doesn't that sound like a recipe i know it's not but to me it sounds like a recipe for disaster um well in in the digital world you are introducing phase problems um i guess two years ago now maybe a little more than that i i sold my console Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I, I mean, I still use a lot of outboard processing, but I mix my final mixes in the box and I do less parallel compression than I used to. Interesting. Because delay compensation, you know, of trying to, because basically in the digital world, every time we, when we run something through that compressor plugin or that EQ and bust something from here to here, um, we're introducing delay. And DAWs do a pretty good job <laughs> of trying to rearrange those and, and get that and we're get talking about you know like tiny little millisecond delays not like an audible slapback delay but um right. an almost imperceptible delay we're, but, but we're, it's additive we're talking fractions yeah. of milliseconds okay. so like literally like one of the things i show people in my courses and people don't think they'll hear it but if i shifted two things and i shifted one of them one twenty thousandth of a second wow you could hear that. You may not hear it the first time I played it, but second or third time you would. So when we're talking, like literally we're shifting things samples, like if we chop something up 44,000, you know, 100 times per second, shifting one sample is audible mm. when, you, when you're blending it back in with something else. Okay. Just on its own, it's not. But when you blend it in with something else, it is. Um, if you're working on consoles with hardware, that's not an issue right. because... You know, you might have some delay up in the light spectrum, 
But when you route something out, he means really, really, really yeah, high numbers. Now. Like nothing we're ever going to hear or record. But in sitting on a console, when you route something here to here to here to here to here, run it through that EQ, that compressor, and it's all analog, it comes back perfectly in phase in the audio spectrum. There is no delay at all in the audio spectrum. Digital changed that mm -hmm. because processing digital in introduces delay. So I do actually less of that now than I used to. Um, and uh, I'll still do it on some, but I'm, I'm honestly more nervous about it because I can't wait till the day when I can try because people swear by it. I just every time I read about it, mm -hmm. I just sit there and think that's got to be a recipe for disaster. But, but, but where I do where not. I do do it, and it's still totally worth trying. And actually, some of our plugins, uh, some of our plugins will have mix knobs, and that's kind of a, a safer way to do it. So you can actually, you know, maybe bus all your drums to one stereo bus hit it through your favorite compressor, you know, compress it really aggressively, and then maybe only make it like 20% mm -hmm. the compressed wet sound and 80% the other, or 50-50, whatever you like. But when I, where I tend to do sometimes, just thinking of the record I just finished mixing a day or two ago, um, I did a lot of things with kind of parallel, like with the bass sound. A lot of the bass sounds came in and they were sort of uninspiring. Mm -hmm. And so I just duplicated the track and I did like aggressive compression and distortion and things like that on that. And then I blended it. So it's one track there and I can really keep a gauge on what's going on. And I sometimes will still do parallel stuff with drums, but I just I just trust it less than I did in the analog world. And yeah, it's, it's getting better all the time, but it's still not perfect. And and also in the DAW, at least in Pro Tools, you know, it, it can't comp it can't compensate multiple bussing. So mm -hmm. I might you know bus a snare over here, you know process it one way, and then take the out that process snare and bring it over into another group, and then back here. So isn't that latency cumulative between every time you yes. send it out and bring it back? Yes, and That's or, also or, or even just plugins, disaster. even using yeah. a plugin. So I could do that no problem on my console. But basically, when when you have something routed here to here to here to here to here. Uh, the the DAW can't compensate for those multiple things. It when you sort of bust down multiple chains, DAWs can't can't do that math. Wow. Okay. Uh, questions from our beautiful viewers. Um, hi guys. Mojo Bone, you are correct. At 24 bit, you shouldn't need to compress going in. That is 100% correct. No need to ever record more than two thirds of the way up your meters. All right, uh, questions from, this one's from Lamar Franklin. He wants to know, is it possible to edit out the live track being heard through the speakers versus headphones while live solo tracks were being recorded? So basically headphone bleed, is there a way, I don't know that edit is the right word for that, but yeah. uh, you know, is there a way to get that stuff out? Not really. Okay. Uh, by the way, one trick that I, that I learned back in, in prehistoric days when recording vocals live in a room without headphones, take a pair of ortones um, and reverse the phase on one of the, the wires mm -hmm. so that they're now out of phase with each other and stick them dead center behind a microphone where there's the most rejection. Yes. For some reason that works. Beautiful. And if you want to run down the rabbit hole for 40 seconds, one of the things you could also do is if you if you record the, uh, the vocal with the bleed, don't use any compression on the way in or this won't work. Uh, mm -hmm. You could then record the vocal and then record on another track that just the music without the person singing ah. and then invert the polarity or flip the phase on the second track and they could start to cancel each other out.
but I recommend you spend time and just record a bunch of stuff without headphones and mix it yeah. and just see how easy your life actually is and how a lot of this little details is not really a big deal most of the time. If you want to find out what not a big deal some of the stuff we're talking about is, go listen to several of the tracks on the Neil Young record, Comes a Time, which I engineered a lot of. Um, we're done with Neil walking around the studio with my assistant following him around with an 87 on a stand. And three weeks later, Neil will go, oh, remember on Tuesday, that rainy day, it was like four o'clock in the afternoon and I did the, you know, and we'd have to go find it. And you could hear his footsteps on the carpet or on the wood floor. Mm -hmm. You could hear the room changing as he walked around, but that stuff made it to the record and nobody bought one less record because yep. of it. Yep. <laughs> um, so Joe Hendricks wants to know, I've been finding that hip hop tracks maintain a pretty consistent, uh, maintain a pretty consistent throughout the piece. Did I miss a word? Yeah, uh, with that in mind. Uh, uh, yeah, find it again and see if you can update this one. I'm going to move on. Uh, Carrie Cox wants to know, is it fair to assume that your high-end uh, VIs, like a great piano, for example, have already been EQ'd fairly accurately, probably needing little or no further EQ? Absolutely, 100% no. Yeah, I, I, I depends on context. Yes, again, I'm 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 jokingly getting excited about this, but actually, no, I'm not. I'm really excited about this. The thing about your virtual VIs or virtual instruments is they're designed one. They're designed to sound great when you demo them, and so you want to buy it. But the thing is, none of these things are designed for the track that you're making. Uh, so when when even if they did the best job in the world of capturing it. They have no idea if this guitar is going to sit in with strings. I'm sorry, this virtual piano, is right. it going to sit with strings, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, female voice, male baritone voice. So what octave you're going to play, the dynamics. All yeah, that. so never, never assume that even your favorite virtual instruments, and there are a lot of fantastic ones out there, never assume that they're set, except for maybe doing like a solo piano thing if you pull it up and think that's great because... They're designed to give you the full range, the full experience. But you know, listen to something like an Elton John record, like any of his sort of more eptempo stuff. You've got like these bright, edgy, like almost like you know nails going yeah. through your ears. Piano, Benny and the Jets, kink, kink, kink. Yeah, and compressed like crazy. All the bottom rolled off, and it works perfect because yeah. you have a kick drum, you have a bass. Uh, you know, they use that aggressive forward power. So. If you're doing something like that, you can't assume that uh, because even when the people who make the records we love, that maybe they put up beautiful Neumann mics on a beautiful Steinway and all of that, they're still going to EQ that or compress it or move the microphones in a, in a way based on is this a ballad? Is this an uptempo rocker? Yeah. Is it with a male voice or, you know, a remember, female voice? I've told you my favorite uh, microphone for a lot of pop or rock high-end piano on the high end of the piano uh, I, I would take a, a Sony ECM 50 which is mm -hmm. a lavalier mic yep. roll off all the bottom and hang it six inches over the strings it sounded great yeah and people be like but you've got a Neumann or a, an AKG 414 on the bottom end don't you have to have matching microphones no it's nope. not a rule <laughs> just use what sounds good um, L Harrison asks do you use hardware inserts ie stomp box and rack units when you mix slash record, are there any handy hints? I'm new to production, but I have some great 
gear from live performances. So he wants to know, can he take the stuff that he used on stage and translate that stuff to the studio? Absolutely, 100% yes. I do it all the time. I still, I, I do my final mixes in the box now, completely yeah. inside Pro Tools, but I still use tons of outboard from, I've got really high-end esoteric stuff and cheap stuff that I just think sounds groovy. And so I'm, I'm doing a ton of work where I'm using hardware inserts and, uh, and then what I actually do is I print it back into the track. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll do it, you know, dial in a compre outboard compressor or stomp box or anything else. And then I'll actually record that to a new track. So then if I need to pull up and, re you know, to do a remix on something two weeks later, right. I've, got, I've got that, you know, baked in, so to speak, on that. But no, I strongly recommend people experiment because even if you love all the plugins you have, your outboard is just something different. And don't want to even get into the debate, is it better or worse, but it's something different. And that funky guitar pedal that you have, you know, maybe has a certain character or mojo that is really what you what it needs. I mean, the- Just um, make sure your cables are good because yeah. hum. Yes. You know, 60 hertz hum is a problem, but yeah. I, I agree, Mutron yeah. biphase, there was a device called yeah. Mutron biphase probably in the early to mid 70s, yeah. that for my money up until the day I quit making records was way better than some of the multi-thousand dollar units. And that was like a $200 box. Mm -hmm. And you know, Chad Blake, who's a really interesting engineer, you know, he uses guitar pedals on stuff all the time. And so, yeah, it's, uh, yes, go for it. Anything you've got, cheap amps, expensive amps, cool pedals, cheap pedals, yeah. Um, Peter Rayhill wants to know, how often do you move a percussion track, say a few milliseconds, back or ahead to find a better pocket for the feel of your track? That's a really good question, Peter. The honest answer is not that often. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not um, opposed to doing that in a way, um, but uh, uh, the honest, honest answer is I don't do it that often. You probably work with drummers who find the pocket you know yeah and anyway. you know and, and sometimes i mean i end up sometimes replaying if it's not feeling right sometimes i'll replay it i'm not the greatest but i'm competent enough yeah. to sort of do it um but i would i i would never think of that as a standard okay now it's time to sit down and start shuffling my percussion tracks around but if something isn't feeling right absolutely go for it uh, Daniel Murphy wants to know pros and cons of stereo max maximizers, Ooh, yes, thank wideners, uh, i.e. mono compatibility. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for asking this. Yeah, um, there you go. There's your um, answer. <laughs> no, um, but no, the honest thing is um, I am absolutely not a big fan of things like sonic maximizers and oral exciters and things like that as a standard working tool. It's good to have them in your back pocket when you need them, but mostly with those things, those kind of things are mostly distorting your high frequencies. So they make things sound a little more exciting and crispier by distorting your high frequencies. And then you love it on that instrument, so I'm gonna put it yeah. on another one, and before you know it, the whole thing sounds like and, crap. And most of the time, you can get that same excitement by cutting out low mids or something like that, or cutting out mid-range, so I'd, generally go for that approach. I think it's, it holds up better and doesn't get fatiguing and all of that. And I just don't understand people's obsession with plugins and processors to widen things. And I think people rely on them because they mix in a way that's, you know, they produce and mix in a way that's not stereo exciting. And then they throw on some technology to try and make it that. So 
they'll put like two stereo guitars sitting on top of each other and use <laughs> some you know thing that messes up the phase. Uh, to... If you find yourself looking for it over there, <laughs> literally looking for it over there, probably not a good idea. But 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 part of that too is like if you want if you want things to sound big and exciting, like yeah. if you had two guitars, do one mono guitar, pan it all the way to the left. Do another mono guitar, pan it all the way to the right, and that's going to be way more exciting than taking something stereo or panned here right. and using some we thing agree. that screws up your phase. We've talked about this stereo miking and acoustic guitar. It's like Oh, yeah. Uh, unless you're recording Antonio Carlos Joe Beam all by his lonesome in mm -hmm. a room, yeah. um, I would always just double the part. And then you got to think about tuning and, and octaves and all that stuff yeah. to make it better. But yeah. yeah. And, um, and the other cool thing on that is, you know, if you want to make things sound bigger and wider too, again, pan things out to the extremes, use mono elements. And if you still want to make things sound dramatically more wide, start cutting out low end. Yeah, and um, maybe boost a little on the top because high frequencies will push uh, our localization of things out to the sides, and things with a lot of low end will naturally feel more mono or centered. Have you ever been to Sphere Studios in North Hollywood? It used to be under a different name, I believe. I Linda, haven't. Uh, it was Linda Perry's private studio. Oh yes, yes, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't been there. Yeah, uh, words can't describe. Seriously, <laughs> you will um, call Liz and say, I'm never coming home again, ever. <laughs> you won't want to leave the place. It's breathtaking. Oh, nice. It is breathtaking. I, and I've been in a lot of great rooms. I haven't recorded in it, uh, but I would venture to say it's the only room that might kick, uh, oh gosh, uh, Tony Bon Jovi's room. Power uh, Station? Power Station Studio A. Did you know some guy built an exact replica of Power Station Studio A? I think a? Berkeley might know. Or Berkeley bought it. That's right, yeah. Somebody okay. built it in like Connecticut or somewhere, yeah, and I think awesome. Berkeley bought it or somewhere in one of those funny states in the Northeast. Um, uh, Kenda Potter wants to know, how often, if at all, do you use mid-side processing? And that goes back to what we just talked about, kind of, A little, to an extent. But it's but, different. Yeah. For, and for you don't know, mid-side mid processing is the ability to more or less adjust the center information and the side information rather than left and right. Um, it's when I'm mixing a record or tracking, I do very, very little of it. That's um, big boy stuff because you can, you know, yeah. you move something a sixteenth of an inch and it's toast. And so, but I, I do a lot of that in mastering work. Yeah. A lot of times I'm trying to deal with elements like if I'm mastering something, oh, we have a problem on the lead vocal. I'll use mid-side processing where I can essentially EQ the sender without messing up the guitars or the pianos mm -hmm. panned out to the side. And so really in mixing, there's a trick I'm doing a lot now with, this is a little geeky, but uh, I'll do mid-side EQ uh, on, uh, on drums that I send to reverbs, my drum overheads. So I'll actually use mid-side uh, EQ to go in and really thin out the center information on my drum overheads. So a lot of the, the kick and the bleed, the kick from the, or bleed from the kick, the snare drum and all of that. Uh, without having to do as much processing to the cymbals and stuff out to the sides. So a lot of times I'll do dramatic MS EQ before it goes out to the reverb. But that is not rookie stuff for the average no. home recording enthusiast, right? Cause I That's want, correct. And truth I don't is, want people to go down a rabbit hole and spend a week on that yeah. rather than just getting a good and overall balance. Truth is, you know, if all of a sudden, you know, there was a law decreed that we are no longer allowed to do MS processing of any sort, yeah. I, I wouldn't be, oh my God, my life is over. 
it's oh my life will just be like the first 25 years of me making records well, i'm pretty sure you can rest <laughs> assured that congress won't get around to passing <laughs> yeah, that law yeah. even if it's high on their list which but make sure you vote this year so um, <laughs> glenn johnson asks can you use eq to make a heavy guitar crunchy and edgy yes um uh, the crunch eh. you can you can bring out the crunchiness and edginess of it so you absolutely could Again, it goes back to I'm a big fan of subtractive first. A lot of times if you want a guitar to be edgy, uh, sometimes scooping out some mid-range or low end will naturally let the edginess of it come through. Um, but if you do want to really push it forward, which a lot of times in modern rock, um, a little bump around 5K on guitars gives that sort of modern rock push. Uh, if you want really aggressive, bright stuff like Chris Lord Algae, there's a lot of 8K sort of push, which can get really aggressive. So the thing to be careful is boosting up that range can start to get harsh and nasty. Mm -hmm. So if you can get that to come out by cutting out more of what you don't need, that's a little safer bet. Um, but yeah, but if you want to bring out sort of the, the punch and forwardness, like edge of it, uh, a nice, really wide cue. And it's amazing how much just like a DB or so with a wide EQ, like around 5K can really get the guitars to pop a lot, forward. A lot of people don't pay attention to that. You know, just a DB will do it because they can't readily hear it. So they think more is better. And that's where they get into trouble because it's like, do I hear it? Do I hear it? Now I hear it. Okay, that's where I'm going to leave it. And yeah. then again, that's additive because they yeah. will do that on many yeah. things. And the big problem why people don't hear it is they just start boosting first. Yeah. Because if you go through like the first, the first giant lion's share of my mixing is all subtractive EQ. Mm -hmm. Like when I'll certainly boost as much as I need to, but I would say if you pulled open a session that I had done and looked at the EQ, it would probably be 90% or more cuts mm. on EQ. And when you go and problem solve by, you know, here's the genius of mixing, find stuff that doesn't sound good and then have there be less of that in your mix. Yeah. Um, but if you go in and like, oh, take out that muddiness from that guitar, that honkiness from that background vocal, that boxiness from that kick drum, and you start to cut all those things out, then when you do go do one dB of boost on the guitars, it's really exciting. But if you haven't and you still got all that other junk in there smearing up your whole mix, you might have to do 4 dB of boost, um, you know, to get that same kind of excitement. Are you a mixer that takes the finished tracks, shoves the faders all up, gets a good balance, and then you sit there and listen and go, okay, what are the problems that I hear and start treating the problems versus another school of mixing that I've seen? people bring up each instrument on its own and work on that instrument, then bring up the next instrument. I'm absolutely the, the first one. 100% okay. I'm the first so one. Go for the overall effect and see where the problems lie absolutely. rather than making everything the sound first one. pretty yep. and then adding them all together. Okay, we've got enough for a couple of quickies. Um, our passive, this is a great question. Are passive monitors a better choice than powered monitors, self-powered monitors? Um, no, but it doesn't mean that passive and active are not better than the others. Okay. Um, some of the best speakers in the world are active, and some of the best speakers in the world are passive. And again, when we say active, it just means it has the power amps built inside the speaker cabinet. Right. Um, but never let that determine that that's better or worse. Uh, a lot of times for, you know, setting up your home studio, Active is really nice because there's less cabling, less to worry about, less to, oh, did I did I match the speakers correctly or mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and so there's, you know, my, um, 
you know, in, in my room, I have two pass two sets of active speakers and one set of passive speakers that I work on every day, and uh, and they're all great. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, don't let passive or active. Somebody, sway I, I, uh, Samson sent me a pair of like five-inch two-way monitors um, that are self-powered, and they've got a slot to put a, a iPhone or iPod in the top of them. Mm -hmm. And I kind of chuckled when I opened up the box, like mm -hmm. <laughs> being a jerk. Uh, and I gotta say, they sound reasonably good. They sound almost as good as my NS10s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so never judge a speaker by its size yeah. or the fact that it's got a uh, connector for an iPhone. For top. <laughs> uh, okay, last question. Marion Laird wants to know, does it matter if there are bookshelves attached to the long walls when setting up the studio? Um, don't let that cause you too much grief either way. Um, the one, the, they're probably not doing a lot to hurt or help you. I've got to think, if anything, it might be a help because yeah. it's a, a diffractive surface that's going to break things up rather than reflective, you know? Yeah, and that'd be more likely if they were on the back wall, which, right. you know, I would set something up traditionally would be the shorter wall. Right. Um, but, but but I know we here, I'm, I'll see if I can in 90 seconds talk about something we skipped over, didn't get into. Okay. But um, if, you, if you're looking to improve the sound of your room, look for absorption in what they call the first reflection zones. And that really is the way to simplify that is, you know, when sound comes out of the speakers, it doesn't all just come at you like a laser beam. It goes out and bounces off the side walls and comes back to your ears. So if you can think about, you know, imagine if there was you know, hitting a billiard ball in space mm -hmm. from your head to back to the tweeter, where would that spot be? If you can put an absorption on that, that is the biggest improvement you could possibly make. And are you talking foam panels that don't, we've don't. all seen, or what do you? What's your, I'm, I'm, your favorite inexpensive form of absorption to solve that problem? I'm not a fan of foam at all. I, I don't find I find it to be expensive and not particularly useful. But it looks um, cool. Unless, unless you, <laughs> yeah, they, you're welcome to that opinion. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, that was said with so my good. tongue firmly yes, planted no, in my cheek. Um, but there's basically things that like mineral wool or. Uh, high-density fiberglass um, there's there's a bunch of different options um, I use I, I, I know how to make them there's a company called LA sound panels and I have them build all my stuff uh, for me because they're they're better tools than I am and <laughs> they're not that expensive oh no you're a tool <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> better be oh it used to be so nice hold, here hold on hold yeah. on hold on <laughs> Ah, damn it. What happened to my little right. green box? I actually There'll be some laugh track in there oh, somewhere. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> uh, there we go. Excellent. But but um, but do a little research and look for things like uh, acoustic panels made out of either mineral wool or uh, high-density fiberglass, which is called Owens Corning 703 or 705 in this country. There's even something called Ultra Touch, which is recycled denim. Hmm. And it, it's great, I mean, because some of the, like the fiberglass, is, it's fiberglass, so it's kind of yeah. nasty, but you, you wrap it up in fabric and it's all pretty. But this UltraTouch stuff, which you can order from like uh, Home Depot online, um, you know, you could let your baby sleep on it and it's totally cool. Uh, but really just putting absorption in those spots. And if you don't want to imagine something going through space, sit in your mixed position and have a buddy, get a, a little compact mirror 
mm-hmm. on the on the wall and move it around. Mm, and great find idea. When you see when you can see the tweeter, have them put a little piece of tape there, and remember you're looking for both tweeters, and put a piece of tape there, and then try and put absorption right there. And that little bit of obs- just even just one panel on each side of absorption is the absolute most dramatic improvement you could possibly make in your monitoring environment, and it's not really expensive. I love that suggestion. Um, okay, uh, when's your next boot camp? I actually have one coming up Monday. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Okay, well, what's the website? Just uh, so people can yeah. um, uh, sign up for your email. Yeah, so... But re- oh, okay, it's in the description. Yeah, but recordingbootcamp.com. Yeah. And so, yeah, I do these six-day programs, but we also finished doing a songwriting retreat on the East Coast as well as a game audio workshops and we're just wow. we're just planning out actually just north of LA about 90 minutes north of LA we're trying to put together a songwriting festival up there so if you go to recordingbootcamp.com you can get on the mailing list and all that and, stuff will come to you yeah absolutely all right. well I, I, obviously you and I we say this every <laughs> single time we're together but we could sit here and do this for hours but we only have 90 minutes before the internet turns us off uh, <laughs> now uh, what, what's the thing that just uh, kicked in today um, net neutrality uh, the repeal of net neutrality so yes this is probably streaming to you slower than ever uh, Ronan thank you so much for doing this uh, I, my I know pleasure you Ab- drive like you know, absolutely uh, I love being here to come and do it I love having you um, and uh, what else do I want to say next week Next week, we don't have a show slated, if I remember correctly. But what we are going to do this week, we're running 11 listings for different TV commercials that pay $40,000 each. We're going to send you out an email on Wednesday to remind you of these. But Tomorrow. Tomorrow? Okay, we're sending it out tomorrow to remind you of these. So Um, you're saying I should join taxi? Yeah, the deadlines are Wednesday and Thursday. These are (laughs) great opportunities, really, really great listings. We've just been having the best year so far with, with listings and uh, I'm really proud of the staff and really proud of the work we've been doing here. So on this coming, a week from today's show, hopefully we will have some of those listings done to the point where we can play you forwards and returns from those listings. If not that one, we'll find another We haven't done a forward and return show in quite some time and with that I would like to bid you, ladies and gentlemen, a fond farewell until we come back again next week for another exciting episode of Taxi Thanks, everybody. TV Live. <laughs> wow, that crowd's going wild. <laughs> Woo-hoo. Bye, you guys. <laughs>